Sports and the national character. Now, whether or not that connection really holds up to scrutiny is certainly a connection that's been made for a long time in a lot of places around the world, and the U.S. is no exception. So for the rest of the hour today on Backstory, we're going to be marking the final weekend of World Cup play with a look back on the history of Americans competing on the world stage and what those competitions have meant to people back home. But first, we're going to dial the clock back to the years before the American Revolution. As you can imagine, this was a time before American athletes competed as Americans. But sports were already an important feature of social life in America, and the category of sports encompassed a surprisingly wide range of activity. All sorts of competitions. You know, in the colonial period, there's a reference to sport being, you know, a question of whether a man can smoke a hundred pipes uh, in the course of a day, which a man does in a Philadelphia tavern and then promptly dies before he can, he can walk out. This is Kenneth Cohen, a historian of sports at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Ken told me that when it came to the things that we would more easily recognize as sports today, like horse racing or cockfighting, there were representative competitions going back as early as the 1720s when counties would go up against counties or one colony would challenge the other. And so I asked him if the revolution ushered in a new period when Americans competed in sports as Americans. Well, I don't know that the revolution actually sort of sparked national or international competition in some way. That's still a a long way off. But the revolution does uh, sort of impinge on sport because uh, the Continental Congress and a number of state legislatures ban a wide range of the sort of best known and most organized uh, sporting activities in the period, claiming that these are a waste of resources, a waste of time, that they are an immoral distraction from the sort of pure cause of liberty. So after the revolution, uh, it kind of goes through the crucible of saying, hey, not now, we're fighting a war, (laughs) we're creating a nation. Uh, But then the sports reassert themselves. What does that look like, Ken? Yeah, and so that is actually in many ways more discursive or or sort of in the uh, language than it is in the actual act of participating in sports. Ah, and so uh-huh. even through the revolutionary period, you find newspaper articles that sort of reference uh, you know British imperial politics as a as a horse race in which the the factions that support America you know are presented as sort of horses named Liberty uh, or uh, you know, names that that Americans would sort of identify with. And then Uh there are the factions that oppose Americans, which are presented with horses with horrible names like Changeling. You don't know what they're going to become and what they're going to do to you. And (laughs) the Americans really do use sport as a metaphor, even though the actual activities uh, are banned and, and to some extent become less frequent during the revolutionary period. And this then carries through to the post-war period. And really begins to flourish when America fights Britain again in the War of 1812. The, the best example of this is a great uh, political cartoon that shows James Madison boxing George IV. And George IV is punched in the nose and he's actually streaming blood out of his nose in the cartoon. And, you know, Madison is sort of saying, ha ha, you know, you're, you're overweight and out of shape and can't handle this fight. And I'm sure it doesn't say, and I'm five foot three and weigh 105 pounds, right? <laughs> right, and you're in an entirely different weight class, so <laughs> in all sorts of Madison, ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not the most pugilistic of our presidents, I wouldn't think. <laughs> so you have all this kind of uh, metaphorical use of sport. Uh, does the reality of sport begin to catch up with this as the country sort of regains its balance uh, after the War of 1812? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it takes a while. Uh, these bans get lifted as America is reaching or enjoying an economic boom that does allow uh, wealthier Americans to begin to fund and finance and organize larger-scale sporting events. And it's uh, the, the moral critique against these activities certainly continues, but it gets less traction. People sort of look around and they say, well, we're doing fine. We can afford to do these kinds of things now. Uh, and so you really see a takeoff in these sort of regional representative events in terms of uh, a series of north and south horse races starting in the 1820s, which get the most press and attract probably the largest crowds of any sporting events before the Civil War. Uh, these are sort of presented as as sectional and regional events. It seems like a, a kind of a dangerous way to array competition at a time when the real competition of uh, between slavery and free labor and the Republicans and the Democrats, whatever, is, is brewing. Yeah, I think it could have been. But, uh, but the way that sport is constructed by the folks who are funding these events really sort of bridges that gap. And sport becomes a, a place where Americans can play out these tensions in a somewhat safer space, a safer way. Ah. Uh, and, and so the northern elite and the southern elite are both using these events to sort of rally support behind them within their regions uh, in a very subtle, very political way. Yet... It's important to recognize, having said that there's not a whole lot of differences between the way the Northerners and Southerners approach these kinds of sporting events and the way they organize them, there is a difference in the way they execute them. And so the races in particular reflect uh, one of those primary differences, right, which is the labor system, where Southerners primarily employ uh, African-American slaves to ride their horses, and Northerners primarily, but not exclusively, uh, employ uh, generally Irishmen. Uh, to ride their horses, which, of course, really reflects that labor divide, uh, but does so in a way, again, that's trying to rally uh, the sort of general population behind their leaders and representatives from their region. So uh, by the 1830s, 40s, the United States has sort of recovered its sporting mojo <laughs> and sports are, especially horse racing, uh, seem to be quite common. In other venues, the United States is eager to project itself onto the world stage. Does the same thing happen in sport? Yeah, I think all of this uh, you know, overall economic growth that we talked about in the first half of the 19th century has America sort of feeling its oats, right? You know, whether you're talking about theater and the search for a great American drama or whether you're talking about uh, sporting events and trying to uh, prove to the world that America is a mature and and competitive country on the on the global scene, uh, you do find a uh, you know nationalism sort of sparking uh, greater conversation. And so, uh, by the time you get to the 1840s and 1850s, Americans are trying to stage and challenge largely England to a, a range of sporting competitions. The the first notable one of these is the America's Cup, the sailing competition that still exists today. Um, but, you know, shortly on the heels of that, you have a chess prodigy, Paul Morphy from New Orleans, uh, who goes over to England and uh, basically beats all the individual national champions around Europe who are willing to face him. And so he comes back sort of hailed as a world champion who's, you know, uh, sort of placed America on the global sporting stage. Now, I can't help but notice as a historian of the Civil War that a lot of this really seems to be picking up in the 1850s. Uh, is there anything to be 
made of the fact that the United States is projecting itself as a unified nation abroad at the same time it's kind of coming apart at the seams at home? Yeah, I mean, for the same reason that we talk about uh, so many of the regional and local events uh, being staged in a way that sort of tries to tie local populations to local leaders or regional populations to regional leaders, you know, these representational sporting events, there's always a certain element of promoting domestic unity in one's own backyard as much as there is projecting some sort of identity or superiority against your opponent. Uh, And so that's certainly true in the 1850s and 1860s. There's a great quote from a newspaper covering Paul Morphy's chess tour. And when he comes back home, there's this great celebration. The newspaper says, I'm going to quote here, They have come with fraternal impulses from the hills of New England, the rich regions of the Middle States, the flowery prairies of the illimitable West, and from my own golden and sunny section where the blue waves of the Gulf of Mexico swell up a constant choral symphony with the music of our national union. They come together as strangers, but they have met as brothers and friends. And so all of these supporters of chess from all corners of the country come together to support Paul Murphy, our national champion, which sort of speaks to our roots as a, as a unified country. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. And so you can really see this being spun in a way to try to represent the fact that sporting culture does bridge these sectional divides. And it's a way in which leaders in both regions try to hold the pieces together uh, over the course of the long sectional fission that that ultimately results in the Civil War. Ken, thanks so much for explaining this uh, complicated story to us. Thanks for having me. Kenneth Cohen is a history professor at St. Mary's College of Maryland. He's currently at work on a book called They Will Have Their Game, How Sports Shaped Democracy in Early America. 